You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I created this podcast along with everything I do at yourparentingmentor.com to support and inspire you to be the best parent you can be. I know for a fact and from experience that parenting was never meant to be done alone. From conception to preschool, my mission is to give you the tools, strategies, and knowledge to embrace and elevate your parenting experience. I'm dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and guiding you to nurture your child's immense potential with as much joy and ease as humanly possible. Make sure to take time to check out all of the resources I have gathered for you in the show notes, as well as on my website, yourparentingmentor.com. And be sure to get on my email list so you do not miss a single episode and other products and events I curate specifically for you. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or feedback. A warm welcome to you and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have Dr. Laura Park Figaro. And uh, I just had to say doctor because she just got her PhDs just a week ago. So I wanted to celebrate that. And so Laura, thank you for making the time to be here with us today. And welcome to The Art of Parenting. Thank you so much. I'm happy to have the time now that that degree is done to do podcasts. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That was that was a lot. And you told me offline that it was five years. So, yeah. so really, congratulations. Thank you. So as I always like to start um, to have my guests kind of define what the art of parenting means to them. I love that you asked this question. And I have loved listening to previous guests answer it. And I've thought a lot about this. And I think the thing for me is that you are never going to be a perfect parent, no matter how hard you try. You're going to fail. I like to call them fail learns instead of failures. <laughs> and um, embracing that idea of the fail learn and really being able to repent and say, I'm sorry to your child when when you do something that hurts them or you do something wrong in your parenting and just sort of embracing that, embracing that it's messy and hard sometimes and being able to you know, change and learn and grow as a result of the the things that we inevitably learn from when we make mistakes. So yeah, that's, I think a lot of times in our, in our modern world, we can be inundated with so much information about parenting that it feels like we have to do it just right. And I just want to encourage people that you can't, we're human, you know, so right, right. Yeah. There, there, there is no, there is no perfection. It's an illusion. So no, totally. Yes. Yes, thank you for that. And and I would love for you to share a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Yeah, so I am a pediatric occupational therapist. I feel like maybe I should explain what that is. Occupational therapists do not help children get jobs. <laughs> we actually <laughs> we actually help children with anything that occupies their time. So the skills and that they need to participate in daily life at school, at home, in the community, with their family, with their friends. So I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. I've worked with children now for 23 years. I've been an OT. And about eight years ago, I think it's been now, I 
pivoted and took my entire practice outdoors into nature, which was something that at the time not many people were doing. It was kind of new in in my field. And I started a practice called Outdoor Kids OT. I was living in California at the time. The practice is still there, even though I have moved to Wisconsin to be near my husband's family. And so we're getting started here as well. I'm going to be running two branches. Um, But Outdoor Kids OT is a business that exists to support children in their daily occupations, but we do everything outdoors in nature. So we don't have a brick and mortar clinic. We do everything outside. Um, We specialize in groups for children. So groups that we work on social skills, we work on motor skills, we work on self-regulation, all in the beauty of our local parks. So it really just grew from there. Once I started doing it, I hired some employees and then I really loved it so much and just saw so much change and such a positive response from families that we developed a model called the Contigo Approach. It stands for Connection and Transformation in the Great Outdoors. It's an acronym. Um, it also means with you in Spanish, which is very cute because <laughs> um, we're with families, with nature in, in, um, in our work. And so now I have a second business called Therapy in the Great Outdoors in which I teach the Contigo approach and I train therapists how to do this work outside in a way that is effective and in alignment with the evidence that we have that supports it. So yeah, and I'm I'm now that the PhD is done, I've also got the ball rolling to start a nonprofit to raise scholarship funds for people to have their kids access outdoor services even if they can't afford it. So I'm I'm going to be running three businesses soon, but I'm super excited and everything kind of feeds all of the businesses feed one another in a sense and and just really fill my cup and I love my work. I love to impact families' lives in this way and therapists' lives too. It really does change therapists' lives. They become more excited about their work and just seeing the changes that that children make outdoors. So Right. And I just love the the approach of being out in nature and and you know in the great outdoors. And I know there has been, you know, a big movement for uh what is it, forest schools and and just, you know, being outside, which I, I just love. I mean for me Nature is always my answer to when something is not right, you know, within me. It's like, go take a walk, <laughs> go outside, go, totally. <laughs> go foot in the grass, whatever, whatever is needed. It, it really helps us. But where, where did you get this inspiration from? Where, where did that, when did that spark come I started, I did a master's program before years before, a few years before my PhD and swore I'd never go back to school, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so I did a post-professional master's. I had had about 13 years of experience as an OT and we had to do like a, a thesis, right? And so I started looking at a lot of the, I read a lot of books and looked at a lot of literature about nature and children. And that kind of got me interested in it. And then I just kind of wanted to actually do my own research. And so that took me into um, the the PhD program. But yeah, I just, I've always loved nature myself, Um, really came to love it in college. And I remember I was finishing my OT program and I volunteered as a backpacking guide for high school students at a ranch in Colorado for two summers. Um, And right at the end of my OT um, bachelor's degree, 20 something years ago. (laughs) And I remember standing on top of one of these 14ers in Colorado, you know, in America, these are, these are like some of the tallest mountains we have and thinking someday I want to work with kids as an OT and do something outdoors. And then I just kind of lost 
side of that, right? I went home, I ended up getting married the next year, and then I had three children and started working in schools because that was great for having a family. You know, it was, it was great for that season in my life to have summers off and holidays and all of that, but, but really kind of just woke up to that idea that I had 13 years later. So it kind of, it kind of was like coming full circle to, to having that memory of remembering like, wait, this was what I really wanted to do. And it just took me a long time to kind of go back to it. But um, life got in the way a little bit, but I don't regret any of it. it. It gave me experience. And, you know, I was with my kids and had a great family and stuff like that. But Exactly. Yeah. And for me, like the, the whole like just therapy as a, as a whole, like to be in nature is very therapeutic. So I can see how that um, work. And I'm sure you know of uh, Richard Luce's work. Yeah, he was one of the books I read. Yeah. <laughs> okay, because that, that's when I, you know, when I was reading your bio, I was thinking, oh my gosh, because I had a few years back, I went to listen to him and it was just like, oh my goodness, like the, the statistics of the lack of outdoor time our children have today is just is just, you know, mind boggling and and really kind of scary. So are you finding that like in, in with the families that you work with that this is maybe the only time that they do get to have outdoor time is with you? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I have data on that necessarily. It's an interesting thing because I work with a lot of therapists too that do this work, right? So I've seen inside of a lot of different nature-based, we call them nature-based practices or outdoor practices. And we have this kind of discussion a lot, like, are the families that come to us outdoorsy, like they value the outdoors already? Or are the families that come to us searching for therapy and they they think maybe the outdoors is good for kids. Like, I don't know that we have research on that yet to know if like, is it kind of a, there's like in research, we'd call it like a selective user bias, essentially, you know, like they're coming because they already value the outdoors. I think probably they do. I think if parents didn't value the outdoors and want their child to be outdoors more, um, they probably wouldn't seek services from an outdoor business. Right. But right. I think most parents or, or a growing number, I guess I would say, of parents are aware of the negative influences of tech and screens on our kids' lives. Like people, my, I'm 46. I have to think about how old I am now. I'm right at that age. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I remember growing up, it was like we didn't there was nothing good for kids to watch on TV after like 10 or 11 a.m. All the soap operas came on. So we all went outside. And now it's like, there's just unlimited, this is, you know, I'm probably preaching to the choir. A lot of people listening feel this in their daily lives. Like YouTube just is 24 seven kids can watch for hours and hours and it just keeps feeding them things that they want to watch. And so it's really hard to kind of break that cycle and get them outdoors. And so I think parents do kind of resonate and understand when they see a nature-based therapy practice. I work with physical therapists and speech therapists too, not just OTs, but um, mental health counselors, people that are working with kids that want to take them outdoors. Um, so, so, you know, I think parents, it resonates with parents that like my kid really should be playing outdoors more than maybe they naturally are inclined to just because it's so habitual and addictive to stay watching the screen when YouTube keeps feeding you things. I'm speaking from experience. I have three kids of my own. So like, it's very hard to pull them away from that. Um, Cause it can be very addictive, you know? So, 
Yeah. Yeah. I just, I actually just gave a talk uh, last week on creating screen free homes. And it's really about, for me, it's screen free parenting that I think there's just, you know, more and more data that is showing us that this is not doing any good to our children and that we really need to make intentional choices as to what we put in their hands, what we turn on, whether we even have a television in our home, right? It's like, it's, it's, I think it's really, you know, up until now, we've just kind of gone, gone along with the flow. And it's like, now we're realizing like, okay, wait a minute, you know, let's pull back the curtain and see really what's going on. So, and, and on that topic, you know, from you say you have 20 plus years of experience, have you seen like a difference in children as you have been working with them when there is more and more of, of screen time with, and, and I feel younger and younger children, unfortunately. Yeah, I love this question because I don't know that I've ever reflected on this, but yes, absolutely. There's a different, when I think back to when I first started, right, in in my career, I I don't remember seeing nearly the number of like social, emotional, and self-regulation challenges in children. And, and so we don't know whether those numbers have increased, right? Like I don't have, again, the data, like I don't have like hard numbers to back that up that I've looked up. But personally, from my experience, nowadays, as an occupational therapist, we see a lot more kids that are coming to us for work on those social emotional skills of like making friends and managing your emotions of, of, you know, kind of problem solving, being able to problem solve when when something doesn't go right, and you have to figure out a different way to do things like, it's, it's much more, um, it's much more nuanced, I think. And I think then, then maybe the way things used to be like 20 years ago, you know, it was more motor kind of kind of issues that you could see more clearly. I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, even as I'm talking, but but it's just an interesting reflection to think about that. Because yeah, I, I don't remember in my practice, and I worked in a variety of different settings, maybe the setting could have something to do with it, honestly. But yeah, yeah. And actually, I was going to say, you know, when you were talking about being able to have the the social emotional or you know dealing with disappointment everything to me also what came to mind is also maybe the way that we are parenting yeah. right because i think there is this very unfortunately i i've i've seen it you know in my 20 plus years of just a lot more indulging in in our children and unfortunately i don't think that is you know is is doing them good right so you know t- to me there might be a little bit of that too because i see it where parents can just not handle disappointing their children and so they'll do whatever it takes to you know and and i just that's not that's not life right there there are going to be and, and just like in your introduction you know you said it's about uh, learning from our mistakes. So I think we need to help our children make mistakes and be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is so, I, I'm so excited to talk about this because I think this too, and this is something that came up in my research. So for my research for my PhD, I interviewed 22 nature-based occupational therapists, and I developed a model to kind of explain how the process of change may be happening in the children that we see for nature-based therapy services. And 
one the main thing, like I, I could go on and on about all the wonderful things that were shared and that, that I learned, but the main thing that was like a central um, construct in the model I developed and the explanation of how the change occurs was the idea of braving real life challenges. And that the therapist and child are in this session together. They're in this therapeutic process together in nature, right? The, the three, nature and the child and the therapist, are, are in this session together. And that nature offers these opportunities for therapeutic, I guess, decision-making and for, for therapeutic opportunities for the child. Um that we can't really as therapists ethically offer in an indoor setting. Like nature oft often offers challenges that are beyond our comfort level. Like we are not comfortable. They challenge us. They're a little bit risky. They're a little bit scary. One therapist told a story about a thunderstorm that came in early. You know, she had checked the weather about her session. Like, should I cancel? It's saying hail and like, you know, really bad, bad, bad weather. And that the thunderstorm came early and they had to run into the barn and there was like really loud lightning and hail coming down and kids were crying. They were scared. Right. But, but she looked at that and said, what an opportunity for teaching children how to, how to kind of help their bodies regulate, how to support them through that, how to help them like make good decisions about things in the moment, you know, like when they had to like quickly move and make problem solve the situation. And she was like, that's just something that you wouldn't have in an indoor clinic because ethically as therapists, like human, human ethics, right? Like we're bound by our professional ethics. Of course, we're not going to challenge a child beyond what they're comfortable with because that would be wrong to do as a human to a child. But like, especially in therapy, right? Like, so nature is allowed to do that, though. Nature gives us these things, you know, trees fall in the path, and we can't go the way that we were going to go. And for a child who's autistic, that can be really hard. But like, not being able to do the thing that we thought we were going to do that we planned on doing. And so it requires us to problem solve together in that moment and to figure things out. And so that braving real life challenges is something that happens in the outdoor setting I think more naturally and in a way that we we can't actually replicate in an indoor setting. We, there's this concept in occupational therapy that has kind of morphed into other professions too. It's based on sensory integration theory and it's called the just right challenge, right? So this idea of that we as therapists, our, our, and this is from Jean Ayers. She's an amazing neuroscientist and occupational therapist. Um, she developed the theory of sensory integration in the 70s, and it has influenced OT pediatric practice probably more than any other theory in, in history of the profession. Um, but this just right challenge idea is is that in a session, when you're when you're using sensory integration as a theory to inform your your intervention with a child you you want to challenge them but not too much like not to where they would fail maybe because you don't want to you don't want them to fail and you want them to be successful right so that they build that sense of confidence and competence and what i found in my research is that like maybe the the real life challenges in nature with the therapist there providing the support right 
helping the child to navigate those real life challenges is is actually a little bit different than that just right challenge because we're not able in an outdoor setting to change that environment and make it just right for the child because nature has her own ideas about about what to offer us in that session. And so it was an interesting, you know, it was interesting writing my discussion and like exploring, like, you know, thinking through all the data that I, that I got from these interviews I did and kind of comparing that the, the braving real life challenges teaches our kids that they, they can be confident. That's how you build competence is by, by braving those real life challenges, not by everything always being just right. So it was just a really interesting finding and totally aligned with what you said about like letting kids kind of experience some hard things sometimes. That's actually how we grow. It's a big part of my approach to therapy, supporting mm-hmm. through it, of course, but like but like embracing the the challenges as part of that process. And and even kind of for me, like getting out of the way of them feeling that they can do something, right? Like for example, you know, a, a child at a park, I can see parents kind of hovering over them when they feel totally capable. So be there, you know, if you're if you're a little anxious, be there to spot them, but not to, you know, do it for them or to pick them up and put them at the top of the stairs or whatever. Like for me, it's really their process. What one question I have, you mentioned like taking this to parks, do you intentionally go out in nature, nature where there are no like man-made structures or does this also work in kind of a a playground setting? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that sometimes we think about nature and we think it has to be like at a beach or in the forest, you know, right? So first I want to say nature-based therapy can happen anywhere. Like to me, I feel like you could do it on an urban playground. It's harder, yes, <laughs> you know, but but it's really about noticing and understanding. This was another thing that that I kind of learned in my research is nature-based therapists tend to have this view of nature as this continual context that exists. All of us exist in this continual context of nature. Like our homes, our schools, our community environments, everything is is in nature, really. Like if you're breathing air, you're in nature, right? So, so looking at ourselves as kind of, it's, it's a very um, more Eastern way of thinking than Western, right? Like Western is very dichotomous, separated, but Eastern thinking is more like interdependence rather than independence. And so thinking about ourselves as part of nature, like nature is all around us so we can see it and notice it and clue into it no matter where we are. Um, so that's a big part, I think, of being a nature-based therapist and facilitating sessions with kids is just noticing nature all around you and and kind of using that as part of your of your therapy session. Now, the approach that I developed, the Contigo approach, is you know when I first started developing it early on with my staff, I was kind of running ideas by them, and I, what I wanted to do is be able to share. Well, one, have a shared mental model with my staff of like, what are we doing here? You know, like, what are we all doing here? Like, let's do it as similarly as possible while still being creative. Um, But I also wanted to be able to share it with other therapists. So what we did was really look at the research, like what's out there, what's happening in forest schools, what's happening in the field of psychology, what literature is there to tell us about what are what are the, the most effective ways that we can do therapy outdoors with children? And so one of the things that I found in the research was that there is a lot of research about specifically for children with ADHD, 
there's there's a lot of research about the natural environment, not the built setting, actually being more effective and kind of helping children to have better attention and and have better um, impulse control and kind of some of those symptoms of ADHD seem to, seem to be mitigated more in a nature e setting than on a playground setting like outdoor setting so there's there's a study or two that that suggests that maybe three off the top of my head but um so when i when i kind of formulated the contigo approach and we have a rubric for it so you can kind of know what the approach is right <laughs> what it is and what it is not and when we wrote that rubric i kind of wrote into it like Ideally, your nature-based session would take place in an area where you don't see the built environment. I think we can all kind of know that it's the the feeling. If you drop into your brain right now and think about being at a park where you can see like a playground, a parking lot, and maybe a structure of a shelter or something like that. But then you, in your mind, go to a place where you don't see those things. Maybe you're in a wooded area or a little, you know, a little valley um, or a beach setting where you're not seeing those built and environmental kind of things that remind us of our busy daily lives. (laughs) And that's part of attention restoration theory, which was created by the Kaplans in, I think, the 1980s. One of the things that they say in that theory is that natural environments help us to restore our directed attention because they allow our brains to rest. So that's part of um, that theory is that the, those those types of natural environments that are kind of away from the built world really help restore our attention. And so that's kind of what my philosophy is, but it doesn't mean that nature-based therapy can't take place in a school garden or on a playground or other places. I think getting children outside in sunlight for vitamin D and in the dirt for the immune system benefits that that has for for their body, I think fresh air is great. Like, So there's lots of benefits to being just outdoors, quote unquote, versus in that nature-based kind of away setting. So it's all good. You can do nature therapy anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for, for elaborating on that because, you know, when you were saying there's nature everywhere, I, I was thinking of, of, you know, Tokyo, for example. I've never been to Tokyo, but I can just imagine like how, you know, intense it is or, or Manhattan. Like, yes, Manhattan yeah. has Central Park, but if you don't live near Central Park, well, where are you going to escape and not see the the hand of, of humans, right. <laughs> you know, and, and also I asked because I remember, and I don't, I don't remember where, where I learned this, but about just motor uh, development, like gross motor development, that the man-made structures, um, children tend to learn them, right? They, 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 they know to anticipate them and they, they know, you know, each step has a, a height that, that has been studied and they're all going to be the same. Whereas when you're in nature, like there, there's a log in the way, like you said, you know, a tree has fallen, you have to climb over that or, um, or you have to go around it and all this. So every time you experience nature, it's going to be different. Absolutely. That was that's the key thing. I mean, it's a multi-sensory. You think about the sensory experience too of like touching 
the wet log after it's rained and then the next time you come back and the bark is so dry that it's brittle and falling off the fallen tree. You know, there's so many things that change in the natural world that each time that you go out there, a therapist in my study said it feels like an adventure. Like kids, what my one of my favorite quotes was a therapist who said, I, I really feel they don't think they're with like a frumpy old grown up. They really think it's an adventure. You know, like I just loved that quote that she said because because it, it is. It like makes therapy more exciting for children. They don't feel like they're in therapy. They 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 feel like it's just a fun thing that they're doing. I mean, it's not all a bed of roses. Don't get me wrong. Like, but um, but yeah, in general, it just it's more exciting for the kids and doesn't feel as clinical and kind of medical as maybe going to a clinic or a like a session indoors might. Sure, sure. I would prefer going to an outdoor session for sure. So <laughs> yeah, except when the weather when the weather gets really. This is something too that the therapist in my study they they really braved real life challenges themselves by like, they don't cancel if it's raining. They don't cancel if it's snowing. They actually have their sessions in all kinds of weather because of that philosophy of just like it being good for kids to be outdoors in all kinds of weather, as long as they have the right clothing. But like, yeah, it's really good for kids. I think we've gotten away from that in our culture. Like if it's not sunny and 70 degrees, it's, you know, <laughs> right, right, and I for, I forget where where the quote, but there's there's a quote something about there's there's never bad weather, just poor clothing. Yeah, and I I don't know who said that, but there's a book, Linda. Oh, I'm gonna blank on her name, McGurk. I can't remember her very last name, but her her um book is called There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather. It's an excellent read. She was from. Finland, Norway, Sweden, somewhere in a Scandinavian country. And she moved to the US and got a ticket for her kids playing in a creek and then went into this huge like research, you know, kind of rabbit hole of like, what has happened that like, we're not allowing kids to play in creeks in America. And so it's just a beautiful book about her experience. She takes her kids back to where she was from for a while and they experience life there. Great read for anybody interested in this topic. I would highly recommend that book. But yeah, the, the quote is, I think there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing is the thing. But uh, a therapist in my study said, I know we say there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing, but it is so not true. Like, <laughs> she was like, Cause some days I loved it too, because I think she was just honoring that like, it's not always easy. This work is not always going to be easy. Sometimes we can read the, you know, media or, you know, these books about nature and children or the research about nature and children. And we think like, it's just a panacea. It fixes everything. It's so great. And I think honoring that, that, that it is also very challenging sometimes to work outdoors with children, but that's the, that's the benefit as well. Like there's beauty in that, in that, kind of hardship. Sometimes, you know, really nothing good in life actually comes without some hard work. And so um, I think we need to get back to that a little bit more in our philosophy of therapy as therapists in some ways, like just thinking about like, you know, kids can do hard things, we can do hard things. And that's really what helps us to, to grow and change. So yeah. I love that children can do hard things. We can all do hard things. That's, that's so so true. Now, one just just to kind of change the topic just a little bit because I'm I'm I always feel like I'm hearing my listeners, and so I want to to honor that that voice that I'm hearing. When should a parent feel the need to 
contact an occupational therapist? Like what are some, maybe some, some signs or some red flags that, that might be going on in our homes that would make us want to contact you or your colleagues? Oh, that's so, I'm so glad you asked this because I think a lot of times there's a lot of confusion about it. I actually have an email that goes out to families on my email, like if families join the email list at my practice website at Outdoor Kids OT, um, one of the emails that goes out is how to know if your child needs OT, because I know that this is a question that parents that parents have. So there can be a variety of things. One thing I would say is to, if you have concerns, to it's better to reach out and get help early than to wait until things get worse, right? That's always better. I think the things that you want to look for are there it could be such a variety of things. So this is just going to be in no in no certain order just off the top of my head. So um if your child seems like when you see them with other children, they don't know how to play. That's very general, but if they if they seem like they don't know how to play, they don't know how to enter play, they maybe disrupt play of, of peers that they may be trying to play with, but not quite having the skills or the tools they need to be able to engage in play effectively with other kids. If w- they, w- Would there be an age there, though, to paying attention to that? Yeah, I mean, OTs, OTC kids from like zero babies all the way up till adult, you know, into adulthood. So it's hard to say, I guess, I guess one thing I would say to parents is to definitely talk with other parents. I think the more that we can be honest about with our friends and family members about the concerns that we have, um, you know, problems, I think problems fester when they're not brought to light, when they're not talked about when they're not, you know, when there's shame or fear around around what you may be seeing in your child and you're you're afraid and you're you're not sure, find a safe person to talk to about that and and really bring it to light because I think that's the only way that we can that we can really get the help we need and feel support. You know, like you're not alone. There's there's loads of people out there who are are struggling with the same things with their children. So um yes, I think comparing None of us like to play the comparison game. This is actually something I write in the email that I I said I wrote it years ago, but it goes out kind of like automated to parents um, to help them. But none of us like to play that comparison game. But I I think that it's legit to like look at other children around your child's same age. And if your child doesn't seem like they have the skills that other children, a variety of other children their age have, then their age may have, then that that is a sign that maybe you want to reach out and find out if something's going on, right? If your child has a sensory integration challenge where they're having trouble like interpreting their senses and and responding in in different situations, or maybe they have Would you mind giving an, an example of that? I'm 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 fascinated about this sensory integration. Like what what would that look like at home? Yeah. Oh, it, it could look like a variety of things. Um, children, they complain constantly about their clothing being too tight or too hot, or they hate water being poured over their head at bath time. I mean, 
some kids hate that anyway, and they don't have a sensory issue, but it's more like a pattern, I think, of, of behaviors that you would notice across a variety of different settings, okay? So it wouldn't just be with you, it would be also with grandma when grandma bathes them or, you know, with a babysitter or whatever. You you might notice that they they struggle with motor skills. I mean, that can be an issue with motor skills in general or with sensory integration as well. You might notice that they move all the time, just all the time. Their body cannot sit still ever. <laughs> you know, like they just are like a ball of energy all the time. Um, or maybe they're totally lethargic and they don't have enough energy to do the kinds of things that other kids their age are doing. They may complain about being uncomfortable, you know, like a highly sensitive child, I guess I would call it, where they're ju- they just seem like that things are not okay a lot of the time, right? Like they don't feel comfortable in their own body. Um, they can have, there's just so many, I mean, I could go on and on. They could have potty training issues. They could have, you know, there's so right. many things. But an OT assessment, I mean, I guess I feel like I've been so all over the map with this answering this question, but an OT assessment is going to look at your child holistically. And that is that is what I think OTs really bring to the table in the way that we look at a child's development. We actually look at all of their developmental areas, not just their cognition, not just their motor skills. You know, we're looking at all of those different areas and, and we're also looking at the environment. So the child and the environment around them and how those, those things are interacting in order to affect their participation in their daily life activities. So it's really holistic and it's really, that's why it sounds kind of like, well, gosh, any problem could go to an OT, you know, <laughs> because because we really do look at so many different developmental areas. And then, you know, when when we assess, like obviously, if there was a primarily a mental health challenge, like we would refer to a child psychologist, or if it was primarily a motor skill challenge that an OT felt like they couldn't sufficiently support the child with, then they're going to send them to a physical therapist, right? Like. Like, of course, we refer out when the issue is beyond our scope of practice, but our scope of practice is so wide and deep that I I really feel like sometimes that's why it's hard to define exactly what OTs do, um, because we do look at at this broad picture of child development and, and really look at the why behind um, why certain behaviors or certain challenges may be happening for a child. So ask me more questions because I feel like I gave a rambling answer to that one. <laughs> no, no, that, that's good. To me, what I heard was, was, you know, be observant of your child. And if you see kind of a, an extreme behavior one way or the other, then, and for me, it's also just, you know, if you have a doubt, like listen to your intuition. Like for me, it's it's. I think you know, as as parents, we have this inner knowing, and if there's there's a doubt, like there's no harm in going and and paying, you know, having a visit with an OT. Like for me, that's oftentimes the parents that I work with. If there you know seems to be something going on, I always say you know maybe you should make an appointment with an occupational therapist because to me you are kind of that that broader spectrum and and 
see that there is something, you know, more specific, you will know where to guide that parent to, to get the support they need. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, and it's, it's, it's true, because for me, I had, um, I came to know occupational therapist, uh, working in a classroom in a Montessori classroom. And I, you know, had children that, that I just could not figure out. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it was more, I was just comparing them to the multitude of children that I had seen over the years. And when I felt that there was something off, you know, I would say, and what's hard there for me is that I felt that parents were not always receptive to hearing that kind of information. Like, and, and it's hard, like nobody wants to hear, you know, your child might have something uh, you know, a bit different or, or let's get help. But, but, you know, what you said of like, the earlier, the better. And, and I remember there was this one child where the parent was just in such denial and, you know, but no, they're an angel at home and all this. And, and this, you know, this child was causing havoc in my classroom. And finally, finally, they got help. And sure enough, there was a sensory integration uh, issue going on. And once he got help, he was fine. So yeah. Yeah, that I love that you said, I, I, I want to repeat what you said, you just said, if you if you feel like something's not right, right? Like if, if it's, I forget your exact words, but that's kind of like when you should call an OT, right? Right. <laughs> so, so don't wait. And if you, if your gut instinct as a parent says that you feel like something is off, and sometimes you feel like something is off and then we do the assessment and it's like minor, small little things that we can change. And it's really not that big of a deal, but it's, but it is, is your own peace of mind to know that you gave your child the support early when they needed it. I mean, you could you could save loads of money and time on therapy by intervening early versus waiting for for many years before going to get help. So, I think it's really important that parents feel that freedom and kind of bring it to light and talk with the people who know your child and talk with your good friends. Um, if you feel like there's something you're concerned about with your child, I think that's really important. Without without going down the spiral of <laughs> Total, total anxiety because I know parents too that, you know, they, they could see so many things wrong with their child sometimes. So we have to, the middle road. <laughs> that's totally who I was thinking of when I was thinking. I mean, it's funny you bring that up because I have, I have worked with families like that too. And sometimes I think, you know, our own, our children read our own anxiety levels, right? Like, like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's true. It's true. Like our children whether they're your biological children or not, even, even if you have adopted children, right? Like they watch you, they observe you, they internalize how you interact with the world too, because we have such, such a great influence on our children for both better and worse. <laughs> so, so I think, I think really managing your own anxiety as a parent, and that's exactly who I was thinking of when I said, and if you get the, if you get the assessment, maybe there's not that much you know, going on, but maybe there's just a few things that we can change. And then you just feel better that you checked it out already, right? So I, I agree. I think managing our own anxiety as parents and really, um, really paying attention to our own self-care, being self-aware of our, of our own anxiety levels, I think is 
really important in this day and age. Um, Lenore Skenazi, do you know of her? Of oh, her yes. Work? Yes. I've had yeah. her on the show. Yeah, she's great. Oh, great. Great. I need to go back and listen to that episode. I didn't see that one because um, I love her and I her, her book is Free Range Kids. And, you know, she writes all about that, about like really our anxiety now as 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 a culture, as parents is so high when really the the risk and the is lower the safety of our children is is much better than it was many years ago but you wouldn't think that right because we see everything on social media and on the news and everything now we're kind of inundated with all the negative stuff so it affects our anxiety as as parents i think so it definitely does and and it brings me back to 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 that you know point of let's curate also like what we bring into our, you know, our homes, our minds, uh, all this, like we don't have to be watching all of that you know, right. stuff or like, I know I've, I've stopped watching news like a long time ago. I still read, I still, but I just, you know, I couldn't take it anymore of, of just, you know, seeing what, what is being fed to us because there's, there's, there's a lot of good out there and there's, you know, a lot of things that are not happening, but yet we, you know, what, what makes the news is always the most awful, horrible thing. So. Right. Right. And it affects you emotionally. Like you feel it, right? Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Well, this has been wonderful. I've, I've learned a lot and I, and I thank you for all this. And I would like to kind of circle back to you as a parent and you mentioned that you have three children. Yeah. So what, what are their ages, if I may ask? So my daughter is 20, okay. my son is 19, and my youngest is also a boy, and he is 12. <laughs> Just think about my own kids' ages too now. I'm getting that old. <laughs> um, so if you were to go back 21 years ago, when you were expecting your firstborn, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? Well, I joke that I'm like the old lady in the grocery store now who wants to walk up to like, you know, young moms with a baby and be like, enjoy this. It goes so fast, you know, <laughs> because I, I really do. Um, I really do think I would have told myself to slow down and and get outdoors more with my kids and just relax. Like, like really, I, I, I think I would have tried to build more outdoors time into their early, early years. I think it could have been really good for all of our mental health because <laughs> um, my first two were like a year, not even a year and a half apart. So they were very young at the same time. Right. So yeah, just slow down and, and know that, know that you don't have to rush and hurry everything. So beautiful, beautiful. And I hope that that everybody hears that because to me that is just so important and you know even even our babies like take them outside like trees are wonderful mobiles like you do not have to yes. <laughs> stay in the playroom <laughs> under the mobile like go go right. look at the clouds you know that's that's beneficial for everybody um wonderful any uh parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today Laura I would love people to just be inspired to go outside with their children with no agenda and follow their child's lead. What is your child interested to? What are they attracted to outdoors? And again, that idea of not hurrying, right? Okay, come on, we got to keep hiking or whatever. Just letting them lead. You'll be amazed at the things you learn about your child and 
the way that it will help you slow down and improve your mental health as a parent, I think, to just follow their lead and go outside without an agenda and enjoy them. Enjoy your child. Like observe who they are and enjoy them and notice the nature around you. Notice the bird in the tree. Notice the leaves changing colors. Just tuning in to nature all around you, I think, will have really profound benefits for you as a parent and for your child and for your family as a whole. Beautiful. Thank you for that. That's very mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.